So let's look at this. John chapter 16. We're going to do verses 16 through 24 this week. Um, and then next week we're going to do 25 through 33. But next week the emphasis is really on verse 33. But really, we could preach us these two sections all together. We could really do John 16, 16 through 33, because there is an overarching message that ties these two units together. And that is that our sorrow will be made joy because of the finished work of Christ. But for the sake of really looking at this passage, this week's passage closer, I, I did break it up. Verses 16 through 24. Next week, emphasis will be on verse 33. Here's what 16 through 24 says. A little while, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19 says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Y'all pray with me. Lord God, thank you that you are so gracious to us to give us your word. If we're not careful, we take passages like this and we say, oh, that's just about the disciples and, and how Jesus was going to die. But we know he's resurrected and we have fullness of joy. So what good is this to us? Lord, help us not to be so flippant and dismissive about scripture or to only look for ourselves in it. But Lord, you do give us great and wonderful truths that we can glean from this passage Lord, our sorrow that we should have has already been turned into joy. The confusion that we see in the disciples gives us comfort because we have been confused many times over and over. But Lord, also what amazing truth that we can ask in your name and we have been unified with the Father, no longer separated by sin. Lord, help us to, to see this in Scripture, to mine it out and to rejoice in your word. But Lord, I need your help to communicate it well. So be with me. Amen. Okay, so that's where we are. We're, we're in those verses and we read it. And we're going to, of course, break it down. But, but 16 through 18 is going to help us to see, hey, the disciples were confused quite a bit. And that gives us hope, honestly. And then there's another part where it talks about a woman giving birth and how there's sorrow and joy. And I am not a woman, but I think I understand the concept here. I've never given birth, but I think the concept is, is something we can look at. So we call that the power of transformation. And then the third part we're going to look at is at the end. I just want us to really reflect on the union that we now have. And so it kind of breaks down into those. And we always want to make sure that we're keeping the heart of what was going on to the original audience. And, uh, and trying to understand that for ourselves. But 
But let's look at this. Three things to look at. The disciples' confusion, the power of transformation, and the union we now have. So first one, the disciples' confusion. Y'all look again at verses 16 through 18. These guys are really confused. Now keep in mind, their confusion kind of confuses me because they've been walking with him for a few years. And he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And, and because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18 says, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Y'all, I love the honest depiction of the disciples in Scripture because they're just confused. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Whenever we see the disciples, we also see them confused and asking questions and Jesus pulling them aside saying, okay, now here's what it really means and here's what's going on. But right now, I don't know. Do you not see it? Like, what's he talking about? He's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. Like, we know that right here. Why can they not understand that? All right, well, a couple of things. Number one, they had never seen his death and resurrection. We have. So they, they don't have that scope. The other one, Jesus just hadn't really opened their eyes to see that truth yet, that this is what it really means. But number three, and this is really important, they just don't get it. Flat out, they don't understand because they don't, they're looking at it entirely the wrong way. What do I mean by that? Listen to this. In Mark 8.31, in case we're saying, well, I don't know, right now it's a little cryptic. I, they're, they're just a little confused. Like he's going to go to the store, he's going to come back. Maybe that's it. No, listen to Mark 8.31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he said to them a while back, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I will rise again. Maybe they forgot that one. Mark 9, 31 through 32. For he, Jesus, was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Another passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. And they on the road going up to Jerusalem, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So I just want to look at this one aspect really intently for just a second. Why in the world were they so confused? Because he told them over and over and over again. And here he tells them again, look, I'm about to leave. For a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. And he is telling them that I'm going to die and I will be resurrected. But we see very clearly in John, these guys are just confused. And the question has to be there, why? Here's, here's what you need to know. The disciples... Like the other Jews, they thought that the Messiah, the Messiah was going to come, and they believe he's the Messiah. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. But he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. 
that would reign forever and that God's king would not uh, ever not be on the throne. Like he, once he reigned, he would be permanent. This would be the long-awaited king of David, the Davidic king who would reign over everything. So he's going to come establish an earthly kingdom. And if that were true, then how in the world could he actually die and go away? That's what they're trying to process here. If he's going to come break the reign of oppression that's over us, then, then how can he die? That's an odd noise. We heard a bird, but it was an odd bird. So really to the disciples, this really just couldn't make any sense. Like they can't bring it all together. They've heard him. He's taught them. They're hearing it again. He's, they're confused. He's trying to wrestle with that. Y'all, the, the Messiah was supposed to establish an unstoppable reigning kingdom. And if that's happening, then how can he die? So the source of their confusion is this. They simply misunderstood the role of the Messiah, which is what would happen to you and me. We would be confused if we do not truly know who Jesus is. So get this. He wasn't coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He was coming to establish an eternal kingdom and He would reign forever. He wasn't coming to rule the Jews, but to rule all of creation. He wasn't coming to defy the Roman Empire, but to defy all the spiritual forces of darkness in all of creation throughout all of time. And He was not coming to give rest to the Jews only, but to give rest to all those who have been called by God from every people, every tongue, every nation. And to do that, He must die. And they just could not wrap their heads around it because they didn't understand who Jesus really was. Their view of Jesus was as often like ours. It was just entirely too small. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. They couldn't grasp the cosmic redemptive work that Jesus was about to do by his death and resurrection. Here's what we have. Listen to Hebrews 2.9. But we see him, Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, and he is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, for them, his death would mean the end of a kingdom. What we really know in fullness is that by his death, his kingdom reigns. And so that's why they're confusion, okay? We can readily grasp what they cannot... Um, what they could not. They cannot easily deny these truths that we, that we know. Y'all, that we are all transgressors. We are all fallen short of the glory of God. They kind of knew that in part, but they didn't know what it would actually cost to bring us to the glory of God. In Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But listen to Romans 3.10-18. through 18. Actually, y'all turn there with me. Romans chapter 3.10-18. We want to understand the fullness of Jesus, the role of the Messiah. This was the source of their confusion. This will help us. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. This is why Jesus had to die. Because this is the truth that we cannot easily deny. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's who we were. That's who we are by nature. It's why Jesus had to die. Because that was our description. But now listen to Ephesians chapter 2, 4-6. through six. So flip to your right and go to Ephesians 2. And I'm actually going to merge Romans where we were with Ephesians where we will be. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. So we hear the condemnation. We hear the wickedness of our heart. We, we know the downfall of man. And Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says this, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He has made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so now bring those two passages together. And it sounds something like this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. This is back in Romans 3. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their tongue. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no one who, I'm sorry, there's no fear of God before their eyes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in those trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. Cross life, by grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up, believers, with him and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. And praise the Lord. But their confusion, you have to sometimes stop and ask, why are they confused? They were confused because they didn't really understand who Jesus really was and what Jesus was really trying to accomplish. An eternal, redemptive work that did not just stop on the earth but continued forward. So his death was necessary. It was essential. His resurrection was necessary. It was essential. And so he says, I'm about to leave for a little while. A little while, a little while I will come back. But we also need to know that the gospel is absolutely essential. I know I will say that over and over again, but you and I have been saved and are being saved continually by being reminded of the gospel. You need to hear that message over and over and over again of who we are apart from Christ and who we are united in Christ, that Christ became a humble servant to die in our place when we were not worthy. And by His death on the cross, He not only has made us worthy, but by His resurrection, He has resurrected us so that we will never be apart from Him again. Whenever I remember the Gospel, it will help me to flee temptation, to forsake sin, to forgive those who've hurt me, and to fulfill the Great Commission. Just thinking on the Gospel one more time, it will help me to flee temptation because whenever I think of what Christ endured for my sake, that temptation is really no longer as strong. Whenever I look at the gospel, it helps me want to forsake sin because for my sin, that God hates the unholiness of it, Christ died. It's going to help me to forgive those who have hurt me because I've been forgiven for hurting and offending God who is holy. And it will help me to fulfill the Great Commission because if all these things are true about the gospel, why in the world would I not tell somebody? And so flat out, they're just confused. Okay, now here's my application for you. 
Praise the Lord that the disciples who walked so closely to God, that they would get confused. That gives you hope and me hope. Because there are many times whenever I feel like an inadequate Christian because I simply don't know how I'm supposed to understand that. Or I read a passage, I'm like, what does that even mean? I mean, these guys are walking with Jesus, hearing from Jesus, and they don't get it. Now, if you read on, which we're going to get to next week, they have the moment where he says, here's what I mean. He explains it and they go, oh, now we get it. Christians, take hope. You are not saved because of how well you understand Scripture. You're saved because Christ has died for you. We should grow in knowledge, but the disciples show us over and over that those who are even in close communion with with Jesus, they did not have perfect understanding. They just had a perfect Savior. So read your Bible, listen to sermons, think, but also take hope in this, that our confusion is sometimes valid. We are trying to wrap our finite minds around an infinite God, and we we simply can't do it. So whether me, whether Andy whether another pastor, always sit under teachers and preachers who keep showing you more and more of God in a biblical way. They always take you back to Scripture. But God will, He will lead you to understand Him more and more. You don't need all the answers now. You just need to cling to Christ. So they're confused. That's why I wanted to look at it. Why in the world are they always confused? Well, they didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus. We understand Jesus more fully. But then number two, and sometimes I'm just, I just get confused and that disqualifies me. Absolutely not. It just means you're a real disciple just like they were. Second point, the power of transformation. How in the world can their sorrow turn to joy? I think this is a, a pretty simple concept. We just want to look at it because it's fundamental to our faith, actually. The power of transformation. He tells them in verses 20 through 22 of John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy for, from, I'm sorry, goodness, from you. So there is a power of transformation here, right? And what do I mean by that? There's substitution and there is transformation. And these two are not the same. If a a toy breaks, if one of my kids' toys breaks, I can substitute that toy with another newer toy. And it's just simple substitution. He doesn't say that your sorrow will be taken away and that it will then be replaced with something entirely new. He says your sorrow will turn into joy. That something in this moment is going to transform. And so we have to kind of deal with this idea of substitution. That that we're not replacing an old toy for a new one, an old affection for a new one. That there's actually something much deeper. There's a shift in our affections and feelings. And that the shifting that's taking place is actually transformation. Okay, so for what I mean, he says that... He says, imagine a woman who's about to give birth. There's, there's sorrow and anguish. Okay? I am not a mother. I've never gone through that process. I never want to go through that process because it seems absolutely unbearable and it would kill me. Okay? 
Moms are amazingly strong in many ways. So mothers, I think you can understand this much better than men can. Men, we're going to try and wrap our head around this. But a woman has sorrow for the pain and the anguish in the moment. But after that moment passes and that baby is born and she hears the cry, she sees the face, she holds her baby, there is no sorrow for that moment then. There is only joy. Okay? The process which brought sorrow transforms into joy. The baby is not substituted. The, the process is not substituted. There's a moment of transformation when, whenever the mother goes from sorrow and then that same mother with the same baby in the same time moves to joy because, yes, the process is over, but the joy on the other side far outweighs the sorrow that was before. I've seen this in my wife. I, as a father, have seen this in, in a way that only a, a father can. Never enduring it and undergoing it as a woman can because, again, I'm not, I'm not man or woman enough for that. That's an incredible journey that, that I cannot um, imagine going through. But mothers, you, you know what he's talking about here. The baby wasn't substituted. There's just a transformation that took place. In much the same way, he says, that's what's about to happen. The same disciples with the same Savior are about to witness something incredibly sorrowful and anguishing. And there will be death on the cross, but there is no substitution of, of this moment. We cannot replace this moment right here. Instead, this sorrowful moment will transform into a joy. Now, some of you who are thinking theologically, you're like, yes, but Jesus was our substitute on the cross. That's not what I'm saying. I do believe in the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute in our place. Jesus is not saying that he's not our substitute. He's saying, I have to be your substitute. I'm the only one who can go through this, but this sorrow in this process will turn to joy and no one will ever take that joy from you. And we have seen this in our lives. We might not have thought about it. We see this transformative experience all throughout scripture that there's a power in transformation. He says, he says there's going to be a transforming moment. Listen to this. In the same way, Jesus did not say the mother's sorrow, the pain was replaced by joy, but that the sorrow would be transformed into joy. That the same baby that caused pain would also cause the joy. And so it is with the Christian life. God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of His grace, and He transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave. And Potiphar put him into prison as a criminal. But God transformed that hopeless situation of defeat into victory. Egypt's persecution, this is some Old Testament pictures. Egypt's persecution of Israel only caused them to multiply and prosper more. King Saul tried to murder David and King Saul's murderous pursuit of David only made David more the man of God and helped produce the Psalms that encourage our hearts today. And y'all, even Jesus took the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame in the Roman world. And he transformed it into a symbol of victory and glory. That's what he means. He tells them, you're not going to see me in a little while. And then you will see me. And you're going to have such deep sorrow. But that sorrow, take heart, it's only for a little while. And then it's going to turn into great joy that will not ever be able or not that will not ever be taken from you. But I would encourage you pastorally to think through that principle also. 
They're those things which, which wear us out, which bring us sorrow and anguish, which may just make us think, God, why in the world would you have me go through this? Biblically and historically, we have seen God use those things which, are, which bring us sorrow for a moment to bring us stronger, eternal joy. So there is power in transformation. The hope we have is that we never have sorrow and anguish without hope. The world has no hope. Their pain is their pain. Their sorrow is their sorrow. For the Christian, at least our suffering has purpose. Our suffering transforms our joy. We walk more firmly with Christ. And this is exactly what would happen with the, with the disciples. They are not going to undergo, undergo any sort of childbirth experience, but they will endure sorrow because they will watch Jesus die on the cross and their sorrow will be real. Right now, it's kind of easy for us to talk about Jesus dying on the cross because we know the joy. But can you imagine... Like just slowing down and being in that moment. And Jesus, who you've walked with for three years. I, who we, We've been walking together as cross life for two years. If I were to sit here and say, guys, we've been close for two years, but I'm about to go away. But my going away is not really just going away for a little while. Like you're, gonna, you're actually going to see me undergo like, uh, let's just say cancer treatment. And I'm going to grow weaker. And I'm going to die at the end of it. And I won't be able to, to sit right back here in this exact same way with you. Like, I hope that there would be like hurt and sadness and sorrow. But then there will be joy for you in the day whenever, whenever I do pass away. Because what you're going to know about me is I'm going to be in his presence forevermore. Like, my funeral, I don't want to be mournful. I want it to be a worship service. I don't, by the way, I don't want a preacher up there preaching for 45 minutes in honor of what I do by preaching for 45 minutes to an hour. I do want the gospel shared, and then I want there to be praise and glory because that's exactly what I'm doing in that moment. But I'm, I'm saying all that for this reason. We sometimes can easily discount the sorrow that they felt, the confusion that they endured, because we forget that they were real people and Jesus was a real man, and he really endured a real bloody murder for our sake. So we can kind of get distance. So if you put yourself there, imagine then what a little while means for them. A little while you will not see me because I'm going to die. But a little while you're going to see me again. I'm coming back. And they do. And whenever Jesus comes back, I don't know if you've caught this in Scripture, but whenever he comes back, they see him physically face to face and in his presence. And he's with them for 40 days. So they get to walk with the resurrected Christ in his teaching for 40 days. No wonder they are able to go out to a martyr's death. No wonder they are able to stand up to governors and princes and kings and say, you murdered Christ Jesus. I will no longer keep my mouth shut. You must know. Look, no wonder they're emboldened. That same Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. That's what Andy preached about last week. That spirit lives within us. It's for us. It pushes us out. It gives us the understanding that Jesus was giving them after his resurrection. Praise the Lord. No wonder our joy can be unshakable. So whenever he says, they won't take your joy away, it's because he says, whenever I die and I come back, they can't stop me. 
Nothing will stop me whenever I come back. My kingdom will reign forever. That's just pretty cool. So, you look at that word a little while. Because that's really what it comes down to. What does he mean by a little while? And why is he going? And, and, and what does he mean our sorrow will be turned into joy? I put that as a question. How, how can our sorrow turn to joy? It's what you and I need to look at with the disciples. We get it now, I think. But how does our sorrow turn to joy? Y'all, he takes those things in our lives to bring us sorrow and he transforms them into joy because we never endure those sorrows alone. They never endured watching the Savior die alone. They had one another. They comforted one another. They fled together, but they were never alone. The only one who endured and bore that darkness alone was Christ Jesus to the point where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he alone hung on the cross so that we would never be alone through whatever anguish and sorrow and he would come back. And we know that now. So the, the disciples were confused. He clarified and they said, oh, now we get it. And then he says, there's going to be a transforming moment, but it's going to be really hard. And while you're sorrowful and crying, the world's going to rejoice because they hate me. But one, one day very soon, you will have joy and they can't take it away. And so now, now this, the last part of our passage what do you and I need to have now? Look at the union we now have according to these verses. If we're, if we're not careful as Christians, we forget to marvel at the union that we have with God right now because of Jesus Christ. Last three verses, verse 22 of John 16. Jesus said, So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's where we're going to pick up. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Yeah, we have two benefits of our union with God according to this. And we can miss it pretty quickly, right? No one will take your joy from me. And you will be able to ask the Father in my name. Again, we're sitting here. We've probably been Christians for, for many months, many years. We forget that kind of stuff. Your joy will never be taken from you. And I don't have to spend long here because we just talked about it. But your joy will never be taken from you, Christians. Will you have moments and, and seasons of depression? Absolutely. Will you be hopeless? Never. His Spirit within us will not allow us to be hopeless. He will renew us, but He will allow us to walk through darkness in life. He will allow us to walk through valleys where we cannot see the sun or the moon and we feel like we are wandering alone. What do we do there? We trust the providence of God, but we also trust Scripture. And what it says is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be by your side because I'm the Good Shepherd. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Christians, no one will take your joy from you. Because no one can take the resurrection. No one can put sin back on you. No one can break your union with the Father. This right now, this moment that we sit in, this is the furthest from God that we will ever be. This is the closest to hell that we will ever be. Does that make sense? This is the closest to hell that we will ever be. This is the furthest from God that we will ever be. In other words... 
we can't get any closer to hell because we've been saved by the blood of Christ. The world, which is in the power of, of Satan who, who likes to come through and he's the prince of the power of the air and he likes to tempt us and torment us, he cannot take us. We cannot be forced into hell. Believers, this is the closest to hell that we're ever going to get. Praise the Lord. It's the furthest from God that we're ever going to be because His Spirit is within us and we are sealed is what Scripture says. And so we right now might not be in the presence of God, but we will never be further from the presence of God because God dwells within us and the shepherd always walks beside us. Your joy cannot be taken. The reason we feel like our joy is shaken is often because we've taken our eyes off of Christ. And we forget that Scripture reminds us over and over again that even when we are not clinging, He is clinging to us. So we need to remind one another of it. Also look at Galatians 5.22, brothers and sisters. It, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love and joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. If it's the fruit of the Spirit then the Spirit's going to produce that fruit in us. It cannot be taken. It cannot be plucked. It cannot be reaped. It belongs to no one else but the Spirit. So it will be there. Now, what I really love, we have the Father. And this is the last point of it all. We have union with the Father forevermore. See, He said, until this moment, how did He say it? In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now, what he means there is he's like, you know how you're like questioning yourself right now and you get to ask questions? He's saying, you're not going to ask me questions anymore because you're going to get it. You're going to fully see it. That's what he means. You're not, he didn't say you're not going to ask anything of me. He said, you're not going to, you're not going to ask me questions anymore. That's what the original language implies. So in other words, truly, truly, don't worry. You're going to understand it all. After your sorrow turns to joy, you're going to get it. You won't have to ask me any more of those questions. And then he says, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. And until now, he says, Till now, you have not gone to the Father in my name. Why? Because you've always come to me, and because I've always gone to the Father for you. I have interceded for you. So there's an implication here. That in that day, they would have a new union with, with the Father. After their sorrow turned to joy, after the cross, they would have full access to God the Father. And they could ask anything in Jesus' name. Why? Because God would be satisfied with who they were because Christ has borne the wrath of God. And He has presented them blameless. So how can unholy people like you and me and the disciples commune with a holy God because Jesus died for us. He made the great exchange. He made the great sacrifice. Andy asked last week, and I'm going to paraphrase a question, but I like how he, how he said it. Who could endure the wrath of God? Who could be crushed by God? Like who's worthy to be crushed? It was something like that. Jesus. I want to take it one step further. Who in all of creation of all time can not only bear the wrath and be crushed by God, but have the worthiness and the power to rise again? But Jesus. 
And he's the one who said, I'm bringing you before the Father. And you're going to be able to talk to the Father. And you will ask things in my name. And it's going to work. And it's going to be great. And we're going to be a family. Because I have died for you and I have brought you in. And you're my brothers and sisters. And my blood is your blood. And we're going to be co-heirs for all of eternity. You will ask anything in my name because I am vouching for you. And the Father will accept you because of me. Y'all, we have a union with God the Father that we never really fully had before until Christ went to the cross. It's amazing. It says, whatever you ask in my name, he will give it to you because the Father loves me and because he loves me, he loves you. We have been made absolutely fully right. You have nothing to prove. You have everything to commit. Just commit your lives to Christ following obedience, but this will be a huge shift for them. Listen to, listen to this from Romans. For all, this is you and me, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, or sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And y'all listen to this. And if children, verse 17 says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Y'all, what joy we have because we're children of God. We are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, and we are with Him forevermore. So in this passage, we saw... We saw a few things that build up to this point. They're confused. They're like, what do you mean you're going to die? What do you mean you're going to go away for a little while and then you're going to come back? We don't really understand what's going on. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to the Father. I'm going home. I'm going to die and then I'm going home. And whenever I go, your sorrow will be momentary, but you will have joy forevermore. And that joy will also be rooted in this. You will talk to your God face to face forevermore and we will all be together it's unbreaking it's unbreakable man what amazing truths we have sometimes it's worth it really is to quit the one-year bible plan and just get into john 16 verses 16 through 24 and and instead of completing the plan and i like those plans i'm going through a plan right now but we really just stop and we're like, okay, what do I really see here? I see that the disciples are confused. Why? Because they don't understand it. Okay, we see that he says you're going to have sorrow that turns into joy. Why is that? And then it says, um, and then and then what else do we see? That the joy is unshakable because of our union with the Father. And so, y'all, here we are. Let's land this. What do we glean? Y'all, I pray that we, I pray that we're encouraged, honestly. We can be confused like the disciples. We can have joy like the disciples. We can have union with the Father just like the disciples. And we know it's true. Why? Because Jesus said it would be. How does it touch your life? What do you do with this as you leave here? It's really simple. Y'all look at the Savior. See the Savior who came to rescue you and to redeem you. He is your God and my God. Let's worship Him one more moment. And then let's go into this week ready to fulfill the Great Commission and tell others about who He, about who he is. Lord God, we love You. And we thank You that You died for us. 
We thank you that you've given us joy forevermore. We thank you that when we're confused, you give us understanding. That when we have sorrow, you give us hope. God, that when we forget it, you remind us that we are co-heirs with Christ. Lord God, we love you, but you loved us first, and that's our, our, our chief hope and our chief claim. Amen.